one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after. Boom. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Amen. I have a picture in my living room. There it is. Uh, as you can see, it's looking out a window. Um, uh, there's sunlit lawn and shrubs and trees in the background. Um, and then right outside the window, you can see a little, another little tree with a bird sitting on the branch, singing away. Um, there's a, you can see the a little, like, I guess it's an oil lamp and a, some glasses on the windowsill. And uh, then there's a page from, it looks like a page from a hymn book there. Um, although it's just that blank, that sheet of paper with the pen and the ink beside it. Um, like someone has just written it out or, yeah. Um, and there's lilies um, on the desk, white. Uh, and you can see there's a lot of like contrast of light and darkness in there. Um, uh, the light is outside and coming into the darkness of the room and shining on that hymn. Um, so the hymn is, you might guess, This is My Father's World, uh, which is what the painting is called. Uh, we just sang it, but... Uh, Let me just read a couple of verses. This is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world, the birds their carols raise, the morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. So, uh, yeah. This hymn was written uh, by a guy named Maltby Babcock, a Presbyterian minister in the late 1800s. Um, he was, when he was a young pastor, there he is, uh, when he was a young pastor up in, uh, uh, upstate New York, right near Niagara Falls, um, and up near Lake Ontario there, uh, he would go for walks in the countryside, and apparently that's when he wrote this poem, although it wasn't published till after he died, uh, in around 1900. Um, the poem had, uh, like 16 stanzas, uh, two lines each, and so when, Set as a hymn, they have to select. They select some of the verses, the the best known ones. Um, so yeah, it's a very well known hymn. It celebrates uh, creation, bearing witness to God's reign and goodness and beauty, uh, and praising Him. Uh, it also talks about God speaking to us through creation. Uh, there's the lines that we sang. This is my father's world. He shines in all its fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. You're probably familiar with this idea that God uh, speaks to us through creation. Um, there's various passages in the Bible that speak about that, like Psalm 19, saying that the heavens declare the glory of God. In Romans 1, Paul says... Um, Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature have been understood through the things that he has made. In Acts 14, Paul says uh, 
that uh, God has not left himself without a witness in doing good, giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. And in fact, in the Te Deum that we just prayed, there was the line, heaven and earth are full of the majesty of your glory. That's all great, but you're probably wondering, what does this have to do with Psalm 27? Um, <laughs> it doesn't talk about flowers and butterflies and cute furry creatures or even thunderstorms and sea monsters, which the Bible uh, says speak to us about God. Although there are monsters, I guess, or monstrousness in this psalm. Uh, talks about evildoers intent on devouring flesh, um, armies, false witnesses. It's obviously about someone in danger crying out to God for deliverance. Uh, it seems a long way from like this dreamy pastor wandering through the countryside or someone looking out the window at their pretty garden while sipping a cup of tea. Well, so we'll look at the psalm and I'll see if I can connect it back to the the view out the window and the hymn. Uh, we're going to go through it verse by verse. So if you have uh, your Bible or uh, your phone or whatever, um, you can follow along. There are Bibles here if you need them. And uh, we'll be looking at Psalm 27. But let's just pray before we do that. Father, we thank you that you are a light in our salvation, our mighty fortress and our rock. We need fear nobody and nothing, but we want to have a holy fear of you. We come to you and your word with sin-stained souls and darkened understanding, and we thank you that in Jesus you have washed us clean and are renewing our hearts and minds according to your will. So please give me grace to speak the truth and give us all uh, wisdom, courage, and faith to hear you speak and to live according to the truth of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Psalms, uh, this is, we're doing a summer series on the Psalms. Um, the novice preacher is the one who's starting the series, which seems a little off, but anyway, uh, this is like the, um, the uh, what do they call it, the pilot in a TV show, and you don't know if it's going to be any good or not, but anyway, so uh, <laughs> but don't judge the rest of the series by this. So um, I, anyway, so we'll be looking at the Psalms, I, I don't, I'm not going to give a whole overview of them, but um, as you know, you're probably familiar with uh, them. It's a collection of 150 poems or songs uh, that were part of the worship of the Jewish people, starting from the time of King David. Um, David, in the Psalms, a lot of them are attributed to David. Uh, about half of them say, of David, or a Psalm of David, or something like that. Um, we don't really know what it means exactly when it, it says that, um, uh, but... Um, People think that, you know, at least the kernel of a lot of the psalms were written by him or maybe even the whole psalm. Um, but, you, you know, sometimes they're shaped by the later experiences of the, of the people of Israel. But these are the things we know about David. Uh, he was a skilled musician. Uh, he was hired or he was brought to the court uh, at first uh, when Saul was king. Um, it, because Saul was being attacked by evil spirits, or an evil spirit from the Lord, actually, it says. I uh, don't know how that works, but anyway. But David um, played music for him to bring him peace and um, to calm his his mind and his and his soul. Um, so he was obviously played the lyre, which is like a guitar kind of thing. 
Um, we know that he was a, a wild dancer. Um, in Second Samuel chapter six, when they were bringing the ark to back to Jerusalem or to Jerusalem for the first time, um, three times in that chapter, his wild, crazy dancing is sort of vividly described. Um, we know that David put up a tent in Jerusalem for the to accommodate the ark as a place of worship. Uh, it was a sign of God's presence with his people. Um, in the next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, we see that David wanted to build a temple for God. Um, but um, through the prophet, God told him that that job would be left to his son. But if you read uh, Chronicles, we see that uh, David um, helped in the preparation for the building of the temple by supplying a lot of materials, and he planned out the liturgy and the musical leadership of it. So uh, he was a, a passionate worshipper, a dancer, and a poet. Um, humanly speaking, he was also uh, violent and uh, promiscuous and deeply flawed. But nevertheless, the Bible, uh, because of his humility and his uh, contrition, he's described as being a man after God's own heart. So these are things we know about David, who it said wrote this psalm. So let's take a look at it and what he says to us. Um, it's There are 14 verses, and uh, the books that I was reading, uh, commentaries and that kind of thing, all see it as being divided into four sections. Um, uh I'm a musician, and so when I uh, I sort of naturally go to musical sort of ideas and images and concepts that, that help me understand things sometimes. And so when I was thinking of these four sections in the psalm, uh, I thought of uh, kind of like a symphony or uh, um, or a sonata, which is the same idea but just for one or two instruments, uh, where you've got a big piece of music that's divided into... Uh, it's four separate, we call them movements. Um, so it's like four separate pieces of music, but they come together to form one artistic expression. And as I was reading through this psalm, it kind of struck me that um, these four sections kind of flow that way. Um, in a symphony, you have um, the first and the last ones are generally more energetic and upbeat and loud and, and uh, um, positive feeling. Not, just generally speaking, this is usually how it goes. Whereas the two in the middle are a little, um, slower, especially the second movement is more like reflective. And then the third movement sort of has a, is more like a dance actually, typically. And then moves us, uh, to the last one, which is again energetic and upbeat. So, just indulge me a little here. And, uh, we'll go through the four movements of this psalm and see if that helps us understand it. So the first uh, uh, movement, uh, we meet the enemies, okay? Um, verses 1 to 3, uh, you can follow along. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Uh, there's evildoers assailing to eat up my flesh, adversaries and foes. But when they do, it's they who stumble and fall. And even though an army is encamped against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. So obviously there's a tone of confidence um, and trust in the Lord, his light and his salvation. At the same time, obviously there is danger and opposition. 
All right? Why would he be talking about fear unless there's something to be afraid of? Um, and I think this is something that we can all relate to, this sense of danger and trouble, which naturally leads to fear um, and enemies. Um, obviously, in the news, we see there's actual wars going on in the world and in the cities, there's violence in the streets. In our homes, uh, maybe not in your home, but obviously we're aware of situations where there's violence and conflict. Um, perhaps you might be like the psalmist, a victim of slander, enemies uh, speaking evil of you. Um, it could be that your enemy is uh, a disease or something in your in your body, in your mind, in your spirit. Um, so David was familiar with that that idea through um, his helping Saul overcome that attack from from an evil spirit. Um, maybe there's conflict in your family. Uh, some people wonder if this psalm was about when uh, David's son Absalom rebelled against him and tried to um, take over the kingship. Um, uh, or perhaps it's your boss. That can be an enemy <laughs> for some people. I was just talking to people at the 8 o'clock service and and uh, they were telling me that... Uh, one of, the, one of them, their, their boss had just resigned and that was a good thing because they had given them a lot of trouble. And David's boss, Saul, uh, caused him a lot of trouble. In fact, he was intent on on killing him, uh, even though David was nothing but loyal to him. Uh, so we're not sure what are the enemies that are referred to here, but um, could be a neighbor. David fought against these neighboring nations like the Philistines. Um, so uh, I'm sure there's different ways that we can relate to what the psalmist is going through here. But whatever is the enemy that we're facing, we know that the Lord, the creator of the universe, and the one whose, whose uh, love is steadfast and faithful uh, is our light and our salvation. Uh, he brings wisdom and truth, deliverance and vindication. Our life is in his hands. The more we realize what he's done for us in Jesus, forgiving our sins and winning us eternal life, triumphing over sin and death and the evil one, we can enter into the ringing confidence of the psalmist who knows that in God we're more than conquerors. This movement musically would be like a rousing, maybe march by Beethoven or something like that, exuberantly triumphing over the threat of war and destruction. The second movement, starting at verse 4, brings a tone of peace and stillness and tranquility. As the psalmist invites us through his prayer to God for the one thing that he desires, above all else, to be in God's presence. One thing I ask of the Lord that I will seek after, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. It's almost like just this silence comes in and you're just in this stillness, gazing, delighting in God and and inquiring, that is, seeking to learn from God and grow. Um, there's uh, echoes here of Psalm 23, which is just a few cha- um, psalms before in the, in the, in the Psalter where... Um, David talks about God leading him behind, beside streams of still water. 
restoring his soul. Uh, and, uh, and he talks about, at the end of that, that he will dwell. He's confident of dwelling in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. Um, and there are enemies in Psalm 23 as well, right? You prepare a feast before me in the presence of my enemies. So in spite of the conflict and the things around us, God, when we enter his presence and fix our gaze on him, gives us this peace and and also a sense of protection, deliverance, and grateful worship. Uh, in Psalm 16, 11, it says that in God's presence is fullness of joy. Uh, think of that old hymn, uh, chorus, turn your eyes upon Jesus, uh, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Um, David uh, reiterates his love for God's presence by using five different descriptions of, uh, of well, going into that holy place. He talks about it as a house of the Lord, a temple, which uh, is not necessarily talking about the temple that eventually Solomon built, but just a more general idea. It could also be translated a palace. It's a place where a king or a divinity would live. A house, a temple, a shelter, um, a tent. So it's shelter is the idea of being covered. A tent is uh, more the idea of being uh, like a place of hospitality and welcome. Uh, you know, like Abraham, actually, we've been reading about him, how he's pitched his tent and invited strangers to come in with him. And uh, finally, a rock. So God's presence, uh, God's house is like a rock or a fortress, a safe, strong place. Um, so we can sense in this, is, this music, uh, if it was set to music, it would be still and calm and peaceful, but also these notes of joy and praise. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy, singing and making melody to the Lord. There's a tone of gratitude for what God has done. I guess the question is, if, if it was David who wrote this psalm, um, this longing to be in God's house, does he, is it meant to be sort of taken as a literal thing uh, or um, a more of a, just a, a poetic expression of wanting to be in God's presence? I mean, the tent was there in, uh, in David's lifetime, because um, he says to, to, to Nathan, the, the prophet, uh, you know, look, God's living in a house of tent, but I'm in a house of cedar. I mean, he could have moved into the tent if he'd wanted to, but, uh, and to, you know, I'm sure that he, that would have been a nice refuge for him from all the wars and battles that he had to deal with and politics and wives and this kind of thing. Uh, and he longed for peace and justice, a time when God would put things right. Um, and of course, this hope of justice and peace uh, uh, was developed more and more through the Old Testament, through the prophets. Uh, they envisaged the holiness of God flooding the nations in a future age of righteousness. Uh, but during David's time, um, the access to the temple and God's holy place was uh, only for uh, those who were made ritually clean, uh, and priests could only, of course, go into the most holy place. But this idea of him offering sacrifices to God as a king actually points us to Jesus. Um, often we use that expression, he's the prophet, priest, and king. Um, and by his sacrifice, uh, 
like he says here, I will offer sacrifices. And as we sort of heard in that Hebrews text, uh, Jesus makes a way for us all to enter into God's presence and dwell with him forever. Uh, looking at the cross, we see his beauty and following him, we can inquire and learn from him, meditate on his life, death and resurrection. And we rest on him as the rock of our salvation, delighting in his deliverance and exulting over our enemies by faith in him. This fourth verse here, uh, one commentator says about that singleness of purpose uh, and the priorities within that purpose, that is to dwell in the house of the Lord and to inquire of him. He says it is uh, the very essence of worship and of discipleship. Uh, and so I invite you to think about that, uh, what it means to want to be in God's presence and to delight in him, gaze on him, and inquire of him. It reminds us actually of Jesus when he was a child. Uh, um, he spent time in the temple and was actually thought that was the, the natural place for him to be. He was surprised, remember, when his parents said to him, where were you? He said, well, where else would I be but in my father's house? Um, and he, and he, it says that he was sat at the feet of the teachers um, listening to them and asking them questions. And that's what God wants us to do, wants us to spend time with him, whether it's in his word or gathering in Bible studies or in church. Um, the New Testament, of course, says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, so we don't have a temple to go to anymore. But as we gather with each other and, and, uh, and by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit is with us, we can spend time with God and sit and learn and, um, and yeah, that's kind of what we're doing today, right? Gathering together. And so we thank God for Jesus setting us that example and the psalmist. The essence of worship and of discipleship. That's the second movement. Third movement, which I'm, I put the title, A Hungry Heart Seeking Rest in God. This is verses 7 to 10. Um, so the threat of trouble is returning here, right? Uh, we see it in verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. So he needs help from God. Um, but uh, it's tempered here, not so much by this ringing confidence at the in the opening section, but almost a note of contrition and a longing for connection with God that seems to be born out of the experience of God's presence that we just saw in the second uh, section. Um, it's not really clear why the psalmist is concerned that God might cast him off or forsake him. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, he's earnestly seeking God's face, but he says, don't hide your face from me, um, which, of course, is his longing um, but we do know that in scripture we see that when people uh, behold the holiness of God and his awesomeness, often the response is, uh, well, a kind of holy fear. Um, Peter, when Jesus uh, did, um, caught that miraculous catch of fish, he fell at his feet. Uh, he said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Um, or in Revelation, uh, John uh uh, sees the vision of of God, uh, the glorified Christ, and he falls at his feet as though dead. And so um, I think he comes, he realizes that 
Um, to dwell in God's presence also means to deal with the sin in his life. Um, certainly, uh, reading these verses it would suggest that when he's talking about uh, the temple in the, in the second section, uh, it's more of a poetic idea because otherwise what, he would still be there, right? Um, but now he's back talking about the dangers that he's experiencing um, and the trouble. So, uh, and, but he knows that God um, is faithful. And he says, even uh, if my father, well, it says, my father and mother have forsaken me, but you can also translate it, if my father and mother forsake me, yet the Lord will still take me in. Uh, this desperate hunger for God comes from knowing that no one else but him can save. And we are utterly dependent on God's grace for salvation. Be gracious and answer me, he says. Um, once again, we're pointed to the cross here. Uh, when we think about Jesus on the cross, he was utterly forsaken by um, his f- disciples, his family. Um, he's thrown completely on the mercy of God. Uh, and as we read, he cried aloud to God, to the one who's able to save him from death, and was heard because of his reverent submission. Uh, and God did save him. At first, he descended into hell, of course, to take the punishment for our sins. Uh, but then he's raised uh, on Easter Sunday. Um, <clears throat> he tasted the depth of what it meant to be forsaken by God for our sake. Uh, but then God delivers him because of his righteousness. This sacrifice uh, and self-giving love allows us to seek and see God's face to be welcomed by God into our true heavenly uh, home, his presence forever, not made right by our efforts, but by the mercy and faithfulness of Christ. So as I said, this third movement uh, is like a dance. Um, and I see that in, in sort of the way the conversation goes back and forth. You know, uh, you have said, Lord, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. There's a sort of back and forthness, and uh, and it, it leads us out of um, that still place into more moving forward in life, um, which is kind of how the third movement of a of a symphony works. So, finally, fourth section, fourth movement, a steadfast obedience, faithful and courageous. Uh, I guess I'll read these words. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. One thing we notice here is a movement in uh, who the psalmist is addressing so in the first section, first verse, he's talking to God, praying that he'll teach him his way, which gets back to that um, um, verse 4, where he talks about inquiring of the Lord, that, that theme of discipleship. So teach me a way, lead me on the path of life. So he's praying to God, and then he's, uh, then he's sort of talking to himself almost, I believe. He's just 
reiterating his faith, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then thirdly, he speaks to other people. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. So there's a movement through here uh, out of um, what God has done in him and, and God's teaching him to exhorting other people to that faith. Um, and, uh, but yeah, there's a sense of like, almost like a march, like moving forward in life. Um, what else was I going to say about this? Uh, oh yeah, so the, the enemies, so again, it echoes back to that first section because in the first section, he talks about the enemies, uh, um, stumbling and falling, uh, when they attack him. But now he's praying for God to uphold him as he goes forward on the path of faith um, in spite of the enemy attacks. So there's a sort of echo there of what we saw in the first section. Um, also, we we see a um, connection with the beginning part in this idea of vision because he says, he's talking about, uh, I will look on the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living um, and at the beginning of the psalm he talked about god being his light and so god gives us light to see his goodness um i i just what i see here is that as redemption works through history we return from the wilderness to the garden right uh because of what jesus has done and it's only by grace that we receive salvation deliverance and blessing this uh, note of courage, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. Again, it bookends the psalm which started asking, who will I fear? So, that's symphony in four movements, Psalm 27. So, back to our hymn and the hymn writer, Maltby. He was an admired pastor and preacher and poet and musician, kind of like David. Uh, But he had enemies, maybe not human ones, but vicious enemies. The enemy of death stole. He only had two children. Neither of them survived out of infancy. Uh, He struggled with the enemies of doubt and depression uh, one of the lines of the hymn that we didn't sing, but it's in the poem, he says, uh, why should my heart be sad? Um, and so obviously there's a, a sense that he dealt with uh, sadness. Um, he dealt with enemies of injustice and poverty. Uh, he pastored a big uh, urban church and was very concerned for the poor um, and... Uh, kind of wore himself out um, with his uh, efforts in, in caring for the persecuted. And he died very young. He was only 42 when he died. Uh, he got a bacterial, like some neurological infection, and um, he succumbed to darkness and exhaustion, and he died. But in his life, in the land of the living, he waited for God uh, and we see in the hymn that God was his confidence and his salvation like the psalmist, uh, and that he was listening for his voice, just like David was. 
when he says, uh, and looking at him, he shines in all that's fair. He speaks to me everywhere. Um, God, the ruler of the world, his father's world, was the ruler of his heart. Um, I just want to talk about light and darkness a little bit. Uh, and so as, if we look at the picture again, um, uh, one thing I didn't mention before, but you might have noticed, is that the shadow of the window, uh, the bits of wood across the window, which are called mountains, by the way, if you need some architectural information, I learned that. Uh, they make a, a cross on the hymn as it, uh, as it lies on the desk there. And the artist is saying that uh, um, uh, it's the cross by which uh, we really see uh, God most fully in this world. Um, uh, and it's that last verse we sang, uh, Jesus, the battle is not done. The battle against these enemies is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven will be one. So it's like the light of the light out there is coming into the darkness here, and that's what uh, uh, God is doing uh, through Jesus. And as we live out our lives in faith, uh, the light of heaven is coming into uh, the darkness of our world. And obviously, there is still dark, but we carry His light and His salvation with us as we bear witness to Jesus. Um, this idea of the light coming into the world and putting things right was captured by um, the artist uh, Louis Tiffany. Heard of Tiffany Glass? So uh, Tiffany, um, after the hymn writer Maltby Babcock died, he was commissioned to make a stained glass window in his memory. Uh, there it is. Um, so this is in the church that he pastored in Baltimore. Uh, it's one of, I think, the two biggest stained glass windows that Tiffany made. Down the bottom, you probably can't read it, but it says his name, Maltby Davenport Babcock. Uh, and this, so this picture, is, uh, this stained glass is called the Holy City. Uh, it's in reverent, reference to Revelation chapter 21, uh, where John uh, sees the Holy City, the New Jerusalem, which is replacing the Jerusalem where David lived and where the tent was, um, were formerly the signs of God's presence with humanity. Um, but now uh, this, this new Jerusalem is coming out of heaven from God as a bride adorned for her husband. I'll just read the rest of that little passage there. Uh, it says, uh, a bride adorned for her husband... And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them and they will be his peoples and God will, himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. No more battles, no more enemies, for the first things have passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne said, See, I'm making all things new. Thank you, God. Um, He's making all things new, a new creation, a new Father's world, uh, where, which we will delight in for eternity, and we will dwell in the land of the truly living, uh, and the one that the hearts of the faithful desire and seek after above all else.
uh, will be our desire to be with him will be fully and eternally realized. We will behold his beauty and learn from him forever. Until then, we wait with courage as God strengthens our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Um, as I wrap things up, I just want to mention this book that is uh, maybe my favorite Christian book. By uh, It's called 1,000 Gifts. Uh, it's by a Canadian farm, <laughs> farm girl named Anne Voskamp. She's from southern Ontario. Anyway, she talks about... Um, what she calls uh, the Eucharistic life. That's a life of, of gratitude and a, and, and a life that's shaped by the cross. Um, when we celebrate communion, we call it Eucharist. It's a love feast, a, a celebration of thankfulness. She talks about this psalm in, in the book, and on, about verse 4, where it says, the one thing that I desire is to be with the Lord. She, and what she says about this verse is, I want to see God endlessly. I long to merge with beauty. Breathe it into lungs, feel it heavy on skin, to to beat the door, of the, sorry, to beat the door of the universe, pound the chest of God with the psalmist, so that I want to be with you, God, is is what he's praying. Faith is the gaze of the soul, and I want to see in, so I can enter in, enter into God. And she has this line in the book. Just five words that I have taped to the bottom of my picture of the hymn there. Uh, the line is, all the world is window. She says, no material is opaque. If we're willing to see people, circumstances, situations, relationships, enemies, all is transparent. All of this globe is but glass to God. And Eucharisteo, thankfulness, washes the glass it's redemptive work wiping away the soot of our days. Uh, you know, Paul says that now we see in a mirror darkly, but when God uh, puts things right, we will see face to face. And we can be mirrors or windows ourselves of God's work in the world. People can look at us, um, and so I pray for myself that I will be a window and also that I will see others and see my life as a window to God. What is he teaching me? Lord, lead me on your path and teach me your way. Show me your face. Your face, O Lord, do I seek. We need those glasses, right, that were sitting on the windowsill to see the, the glasses of faith, the spectacles of faith, to, to see what God is doing in the world and in our lives. And uh, then, no matter what are our circumstances, we can live in thankfulness, singing and making melody to the Lord, as David said, uh, bringing our sacrifice of praise. We, we had a workshop yesterday about singing, and we talked about the sacrifice of praise. You might not always uh, feel that, uh, feel like praising God, um, but when we remember Jesus, uh, we have nothing but gratitude for the salvation that he's won for us. I think of Paul and Silas, you know, uh, when they were beaten up um, unjustly and thrown into jail. Uh, and 
singing hymns at midnight. I wouldn't be singing hymns at midnight if I was Paul and Silas and being whipped and beaten. I'd be curled up in a ball feeling sorry for myself. But they knew so much uh, the grace of God that they could sing and bear witness and speak words of peace uh, to their enemies um, and calm when there was trouble and earthquakes. I pray that we'd be like that no matter what our circumstances We'd still be praising God. I pray that we'd be people of gratitude, strength, and courage, led by God on his level pathways wherever life's journeys take us, seeking his face in the window of the Father's world, his tender love being greater than that of any human parent. Second Peter uh, 3.12 says, we, uh, we're waiting for and hastening his coming. And I and we can do that as we rest in Jesus and put our trust in him. And when he comes, earth and heaven will be one, as the hymn says. And, uh, and God will finally put things right. Jesus, who died, will be satisfied. And the enemies, the last enemy, will be defeated. In him, we have life and salvation. And so we seek his face in all our days. Amen.